Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Um, hopefully one of you brave souls has planned a Memorial Day barbecue tomorrow. Put it on the Summer Sabbath board and I will be there, yeah. all right? I'll be bringing the deviled eggs because I'm from, I don't know why, North Carolina, where, whenever we went to a party, we brought deviled eggs. Any deviled egg fans in the house? Yes, all right, yes, awesome. Well, welcome, welcome again. My name is Russ, I'm one of the pastors here. If you are joining us for the first time, as Trey said, we're a community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there is room at the table. Uh, we so recently kicked off a new sermon series that we are calling The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. And we've been sort of building it up, so I'm going to give you a little crash course uh, just in case you missed it or missed the podcast. We also have podcasts, so if you ever miss a Sunday sermon, this is not an excuse to not show up to the community on Sunday, but uh, if you do miss, um, we have it on, on iTunes and you can find it online, Android, all that stuff. Um, but what we've been doing is we've been talking about the politics of Jesus. And when we say politics, it's important that we recognize that we don't just mean the system of governance that we live within. Politics deals with how we live, deals with what we care about, our day-to-day -day lives, the ways we organize ourselves as people, as a community, that is geared toward a vision of what we think is most good, most beneficial, the best form of living. And so what we've been asking is, all right, well, what is Jesus's politics? How would Jesus organize his followers for those who accept his claims about himself and say, yes, he is the unique one. He is God who has come in the flesh to show us how to best live. What would he advocate for? And it's quite simple. Jesus would say, you were created to worship God and to love your neighbor. That's it. You were created, you discover your truest self when you were praising God and loving your neighbor, selflessly, sacrificially pouring out your life for others. And so what we did is like, all right, that's Jesus's politics. So in week one, we talked about the sin of Jeroboam. Don't worry about that name. Old school, ancient Israel name. Basically, the sin of Jeroboam was this. Anytime that God is used as a means to another political end, it's called the sin of Jeroboam. And why that's important because we want to make sure, we want to set the terms from the start that when we're talking in this room of how followers of Jesus are to live, it is independent of how it might impact the United States of America. Now, to be sure, if we as the church, as followers of Jesus, were living fully into what Jesus is advocating for, it absolutely would affect the nations that we live among. Absolutely. But that is not the primary goal. Or as one theologian puts it, the people of God are called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. That's what Jesus is after. Then secondly, we said, okay, well, Jesus' politics are the politics of jubilee. That's another ancient Israel concept. Jubilee is, is simply this. Every 50th year, that's 5-0, every 50th year within the people of Israel, all spiritual debts that have been racked up 
in the community's life were canceled in an instant. So any wrongdoing, any wrong thinking, all the, the shame that we had carried throughout the year, in one moment, God canceled it and said, it, you're clean. There's nothing that holds me from you. But the, the year of Jubilee took it a step further. It wasn't just that our spiritual debts to God were canceled, but also all economic debts and all business transactions were pretty much reversed. Here's what I mean. If in the course of that 50 years, if um, say you and your family had fallen on hard times, you had to sell off some of your land. On the year of Jubilee, that land, your family land, went back to you or went back to your, your sons and daughters. It went back to your family. If you had fallen into hard times and you had to like become an indentured servant, the year of Jubilee, you were released. So it's this really radical, radical concept where not only were Israel's spiritual debts forgiven, but the social and the economic debts were canceled and structures of power were reset. It starts small with spiritual debts before God and it moves out, all right? So Jesus' politics, what he's inviting us as his followers, and if you're in this room and we say, wherever you are, there's room for you here, but you're not a follower of Jesus, that's cool, that's awesome. You're welcome here, you're welcome to ask questions, explore it, and this doesn't apply to you. <laughs> so you just get like a ringside seat of how Christians should live, so call us out when we're not living that way, all right? Do that for us. Um, you might not make many friends, but you can, you can do that. So Jesus' politics are the politics of Jubilee. And then last week what we said is like, okay, what does that mean? If, if we recognize that, how do we as his followers start living into this world? And we contrasted two structures and we called them the structures of Cain versus the structures of Jesus, the people of the cross. And we're looking at the Cain and Abel story. And what we found is that uh, if you don't know the story, Cain and Abel are two brothers and through a dispute, Cain ends up killing his brother Abel, right? And what we made the case is all human politics um, are premised off of a fundamental violence. The structures of Cain are structures that are aimed at committing violence toward others. And the reason being is because Cain feared death. So in the name of preserving uh, his own existence, at the name of, in the name of saving his family name, he killed Abel. So we said structures of Cain are forms of, of, of economic, political, social structures that commit violence toward others in the name of self-preservation or self-defense. Now we said, whoa, 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 that's not me. I'm not violent. What we tried to point out last week is it's not that we're not violent anymore, it's that we've transferred our violence to the state or to the market or technologies. So perhaps I'm saying, hey, I'm not killing anyone anymore. Personally, I've just abdicated my right to self-defense to the state to met it out. Or I've transferred my right to preserve my family name to the market to met it out. So it's not that, that it's, it's not that we aren't individually violent anymore. It's just our violence is found in this state. But we said, that's not us. That's not, that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're not premised off a of fundamental violence, a fundamental murder. We're premised off a of fundamental death. Because Jesus 
rather than lift his hand to do violence against others, received people's violence and defeated death. So we are people of the cross. To follow Jesus is not about what we would fight for, but what we would die for, who we die for. And we, as people of the cross, are not afraid of death. We're already dead. We have already abdicated our lives. We have given over our lives, our very being, to follow this man, Jesus. As Peter said, you have the words of life, so where else can I go? So in the Cain and Abel story, when God asked Cain, where's your brother? And he says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? For us, as followers of Jesus, he would ask, God would ask Jesus, where's your brother? And he answers, he's right there killing me, but forgive him. We are the people who receive violence and extend grace. We don't participate in it. We imagine an alternative way to live among it. And we talked about the first century Christians, the first Christians in the Roman Empire. And when you look at them historically, they were a, an incredible group of people because they refused to participate in, in aspects of Roman society that they found faithless toward their God. So when there were festivals, like big festivals um, that, that honored the gods of Rome, the Christians didn't participate. They didn't go to the Colosseum where the gladiatorial contest happened, where people were, were sacrificed for the amusement of, of, of basically those in poverty. They didn't participate, but they also didn't fight back. It's not like they sort of said, Rome, what you're doing is wrong and we need to destroy this. They didn't fight back. They just lived into a different mode of existence. And here's the remarkable thing. They were phenomenal citizens. They were better citizens than even the Romans themselves. So when the Romans practiced um, this, this ancient practice called infant exposure, which was like the ancient form of abortion, where they had a child and they didn't want it, they just left it to die. The Christians actually took them in, took the children in. When, when, the, 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 um, when there were plagues, that assailed Roman uh, villages. We actually have documentation of this. And, and there's actually this one village in like the second or third century, and the Christians were so hated, they hated them, because they, they couldn't co-opt them, they couldn't threaten them. They weren't fighting back, but they weren't participating in the worship of the gods. They were living into a new reality. And we actually, there's this plague that was spreading throughout this town, and everyone abandoned the city. Everyone left, except for the Christians. They stayed and they took care of the sick and the dying, and many of them died with them. And then when everyone moved back after the plague subsided, the Christians were no longer persecuted. They were phenomenal citizens. They paid their taxes. They paid them fairly. There's actually documentation of a second century um, Roman Stoic named Galen, and he is like, it's really funny because he hates Christians, but he's lambasting his fellow Stoics because he says, they are better citizens than we. That cannot be. They actually are more philanthropic and more altruistic than we are. So these Christians were lived in structures of Cain, and you better believe Roman society was a structure of Cain, but they didn't participate in it. They imagined another alternative. They lived to the beat of a different drummer. And they were killed for it, but they were great citizens in a lot of ways. It was really fascinating. And then we took a survey of you guys, which you can still participate in, and the industries that we're involved in, because 
it's important we recognize, especially as we start growing a little bit bigger, I'm not Hope Brooklyn. You're Hope Brooklyn. We're Hope Brooklyn. Jesus is at the center of what we're doing here. So we are a people who are learning what it means to lay down our lives to follow Jesus. And so what we want to do over these next couple weeks is examine what are the industries we're involved in outside these walls and how can we imagine alternatives in them? How can we name where there are structures of Cain, challenge them, and provide a different way forward? So that's what we're going to do over these next few Sundays. We're going to examine certain areas of our society and ask questions like, how do they perpetuate structures of Cain? How do they commit violence? And how are we, as the people of Jubilee, the people of the cross, how can we imagine alternatives? Now, a couple qualifiers before we jump in. We're going to step into some tough topics. We're going to step into some hard conversations. And I'm sure, as we step into them, there's going to be some emotional triggers that kick up due to unresolved pain, um, irreconciled histories, the way these conversations have happened in other spaces that have not been safe, that have been full of defensiveness and name-calling, perhaps. I want to name that now because as we start stepping into it, you're going to feel, like me, defensiveness creep up. Or you're going to feel walls of like, am I safe here? And I want you to know you are absolutely safe here. This, and we're going to talk about this today. If the people of Jesus means anything, it means that we are safe. This family is stronger than anything else. And we might not all agree with everything, but this family is what is the strongest. So I want you to be aware of that. I also want you to be aware, and, and I, I sort of, I tried to, determine how to say this one because there are different opinions of this in the room and we live in a very post-enlightenment age where we don't give a lot of credence to spiritual powers. It's almost like uncool um, to, to talk about powers and principalities. But as Paul says, I want to be very clear, our battle as followers of Jesus is not against flesh and blood, but is against powers and principalities. There are forces of evil that seek to keep us divided and seek to destroy and to keep us bound where Jubilee seeks to set us free. I was reading an article just the other day, like sin is one of those concepts that's really tough to talk about because sin, uh, sin has usually been reduced to um, extreme violence, like someone who strikes someone, yeah, that's, that's not good. Someone who curses someone, that's not good. But sin is so much broader. It's social, it's institutional, and it's deep within us. I think it's hard for us in the West to view ourselves as sinners. And the reason, or as people who are lodged in that. Because we're like, I don't, I don't hurt people. Well, it's not that we don't hurt people, it's just that our lives are so good, we don't have to hurt people. We have that paycheck coming in. I mean, except for the MTA, which can never be on time, we don't get a chance to see the sin within our hearts, you know? But... Here's what I want to, I want to, I was reading an article in the New Yorker. I was talking about the Balkan crisis back in the 90s. And there's this one line or this one uh, example that I thought was incredible where basically this guy, and if you don't know the Balkan crisis, it was a cultural crisis between uh, the Serbs and the Croats and um, one other group that I can't think of right now. But it, it's, you know, it's cultural crisis. 
And essentially, there was this one town where they lived together, these different cultural groups, side by side, as neighbors, and then suddenly the call went out, and um, this one guy who was a baker, he said that his friends, who he thought were his friends for 30 years, immediately betrayed him and turned him over. And he had this one line where he says, when they turned him over to the authorities, I saw a cruelty in their eyes that I had not seen for 30 years. That's sin. And don't think, that's not you, that's definitely you. That's definitely me. As C.S. Lewis says, he goes, it's not, if you go in suddenly to a cellar, rats will flee. The suddenness did not create the rats. The suddenness just had a chance to reveal them. Crisis reveals what's really in our hearts. Crisis revealed the hatred and the cruelty that was really there. Go to the subway and get cut off by someone as they're getting in, and your first instinct is not going to be, oh, the Lord bless you. Or it's not my first instinct. And that's a small example, but that's getting at, that's micro and macro. That's what's within us. So when we say that this battle that we're in, these conversations that we're in, we're dealing with forces and powers that don't want to be named and unmasked, that want to keep us held in bondage. But Jesus is a God of jubilee, of liberation, of freedom. He is trying to set us completely free. So we cannot preach this gospel without naming and unmasking these powers and principalities that are lodged in us and lodged in our systems. Third thing, I'm going to say something wrong. Probably many times. I think another reason why we, we fear stepping into these conversations is because we know we're going to misspeak. And at least in other places, as soon as we misspeak, someone goes, aha, you're this and this. No name calling. I'm going to misspeak. I'm a model here what I want this place to be, where we're learning a new language together. And the last thing I want to say before we step in is that we might not all agree in the room. And that's okay. Because this family is stronger than anything else. But the reason why we need to step into it Because guess what? 2020 is coming, y'all. And you better believe the political vitriol that's going to be flying in our society. If we're not ready for it, if we don't know how to have conversations, if we don't know what Jesus really thinks, then we're going to be swept away with it. What if Hope Brooklyn were a visible alternative to all that? just like the first century Christians. What if we were modeling another way of entering into the fray? What if we were modeling a deeper reality than political alignments while still remaining very faithful or at least pursuing, trying our best to understand what Jesus' jubilee means, what it means to reset powers and structures in our midst and in the societies that we live in, naming them. So... I want to be clear that we might not all agree, but we're going to step into this as a family. And we're going to hold spaces for follow-up conversations based on these sermons. All right. Are you sufficiently scared? Yes. Perfect. You're not the guy up here sweating, so (laughs) let's pray together and we'll jump in. God, we are sinners. There is something within my heart that does not want to submit to you. 
There's something within our hearts, within our world, that does not want to love you. Rather, it wants to preserve its own existence. I want to make a name for myself. I want to be independent. I don't want to come to your table, God. I want God, I want you to come to my table and tell me I'm great. And, and, and I'm reminded of the, the line by Annie Dillard, how do we know we've made God in our own image? It's when uh, he hates all the same people we do. That's, that's what's truly in my heart. But when we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus, we see someone who was totally alive, totally full of love, real love, not fake love, real love that challenges and that refuses to participate in things that lead to death, but also doesn't abandon people and doesn't condemn people. And that's what you're calling us to be as the people of Jubilee. That's what you're calling us to be. And so Lord, as we step into these tough conversations full of emotional triggers, full of our fear, full of our blind spots, we cannot do it unless your Holy Spirit enables us to do it. So Spirit of God, would you just prepare our hearts and remind us that our battle is against principalities and powers and lead us to imagine, to step into what it might look like to be people of the new creation, to be a family that is stronger than any other sort of family out there. This is the new family. This is the final family. This is the truest family. So remind us of that. Lord, bless this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you've been with us, we've been, the way we've been structuring the sermon, we say we're going from Jeroboam to Jubilee, or we're going from Cain to cross. So we're keeping that mantra. And today we're going from Babel to Pentecost. <laughs> Babel to Pentecost. I want to recap the story of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've heard it, it comes from Genesis 11. Here's how it goes. It's very early on in world history and all the people speak one language. There's a universal language. And then they come together and they say, we should make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower. They were basically New Yorkers, all right? Like, well, how do we make a name? Build a really big tower. I want a huge tower. So they decide to build a skyscraper in order to make a name for themselves. God says, hey, this is not a good idea. And he intervenes. And the way he intervenes is that he confuses their language. So they don't all speak the same language anymore. They realize that. I'm sure it's very confusing when one guy's asking for bricks and suddenly brick doesn't mean brick and he doesn't know he hands a mortar or something. I don't know. But then they realize they can't communicate and they disperse into the world. And that's how they become the various nation states and tribes and cultural groups and all that. So I wanna look at that story. A Couple things that come to mind. First, there's one language. There's a universal language. Now this is interesting because it has been discovered that this in fact is true. Noam Chomsky discovered that the human homo sapiens have a universal language that hardwired into the human brain born into the world is the capacity for communication. But here's what's interesting. It's not the words themselves that are universal. It's the grammar. 
It's the syntax, the structure that is universal. And he proved it with this one sentence. He said, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. Now, statistically, that is an impossible sentence. Colorless can't modify green. Ideas don't sleep. Like, statistically, that is an impossible sentence. But I say that, and it makes sense, right? Like, I'm communicating. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. Why? Because the grammar is what is universal. It is grammatically feasible. And then he discovered where he really proved this was when he studied the deaf, he studied deaf children in Nicaragua. And here's what he found. Um, there wasn't a, a sign language in Nicaragua until 1981, actually. And so if you were born deaf in Nicaragua, you were put in institutions and you were basically confined to a life of not being able to communicate with anyone. So the first school for the deaf was in 1981. And what they found with those first generation of those who, who developed the sign language is that it was very makeshift and it was very wooden. It was, it was like Tarzan, me Tarzan, you Jane situation. It was like very wooden with the first generation. But then in the second generation of sign language speakers, without being taught, the kids began to make their language more fluid. They modified nouns. They put in adjectives. They described them. They, they had direct objects, which proved that the grammar of subjects and predicates and how adjectives works and verbs work and all the, the wonderful things you can do, that, that grammar is hardwired into the human brain. We all have that. And of course, for us as followers of Jesus, that makes sense because we read in John chapter one, the very uh, first chapter, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've always been saying that there is one universal language because we come from one God, one creator. And when we see Jesus, who that's the reference to the word, and the word means, for John means Jesus, when we watch Jesus live, what we're in fact witnessing is our universal tongue, our universal language. When we watch Jesus live, we are seeing what, we are seeing the perfect human sentence, if you will. We are seeing what humans were created to do and be. We recognize the grammar of existence itself. And I see this all the time. My, my wife is a wedding cinematographer, so we film weddings, all types of weddings. And the best of them, whether they're religious or not, everyone wants to believe in love. Everyone wants to believe in it. And, I'm not, and when I say love, I mean the love that says, I'm looking at another person and I'm willing to lay down all that I have to serve and to be for you. Everyone, like, it's there. And I would say that's because that's the universal language. That is who the creator is. And what we see in Jesus is the purest expression of love. So there is a universal language. There's one language. But God at the Tower of Babel, God confused it because it had become destructive. They intended, the reason why they were building a tower is they intended to make a name for themselves. But the universal language is not created to make names for ourselves. It's actually created to praise God. You, I, I know this has been something that God's been teaching me recently, and I just want to put it out there. 
I don't know where people are in their lives. I don't know if you're full of joy, full of sorrow, full of grief, full of bitterness. I don't know. I just want to tell you, and I want to challenge you because this is true. I have found this to be true. You discover the deepest level of wholeness when your heart is desperately praising God. And if you're angry, praise God in your anger. If you're sad, praise God in your sadness. And I'm sure for some people that, found, that sounds hollow right now, but I still wanna say it. We are created, and not just the words, but our hearts, we are created to worship God. And that's where we discover the fullness of our humanness. When we focus on making names for ourselves, on preserving our family, preserving my tribe, your tribe, our language becomes confused. That's not what humans were created for. Like a branch of a tree that tries to take credit for itself and disregard the trunk that it's grafted onto. It just sort of like, it, it's confusing. That makes no sense. So God simply brings to the surface what was already happening in their souls. They were already speaking a confused language in their souls because they're trying to make names for themselves and not worship God. So God just had the external match the internal. It's like, this is where you're headed. That's why it's called Babel. It's from the Hebrew word, which means confused. And we even have it in our, in our English language. When we say stop babbling, what do we mean? You're going on and on, but I don't understand you. You're going on and on, but you're making no sense. The humans at that time were going on and on about making a name for themselves, building a big tower, but it made no sense. For their native language is not to make a name for yourself, but to worship God. That's what you were created for, to praise God. Now the external simply matches the internal. They're still working to build kingdoms, to make names, but now they just have to focus it on their small regional uh, tribal kingdom. So they disperse across the face of the earth. And you got the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and all the ites, all the ites, all right? What has given birth at Babel is structural prejudice. That's what's given birth at Babel. And prejudice, when I say the word prejudice, what do I mean? I simply mean a fear of another person or another group due to an inability to communicate and understand. I, I don't speak your language, I don't understand your culture, and therefore I fear you because we can't communicate. We can't, we're doing things that don't make sense to one another. And notice that that prejudice is structural because when they intended to make a name for themselves, what did they do? They built a tower. They built a structure. Friends, what our hearts desire will always be found in what we create. And that's, that's on an individual life, what you most believe in. And we've said this before, and I, it might sting a little bit, but it's true. Don't tell me what you believe. I wanna see how you live your life. I wanna see how you treat your spouse or your friends. I wanna see how you treat yourself, how you talk to yourself whether you're super self-loathing or, or whether you're gentle. I wanna see how you spend money. I wanna see how you treat your body. Don't tell me what you believe. Let me see how you live your life and your life will tell me and you what you really believe. 
There's no such thing as private religion. There's no such thing. And if you think there is, that you just want a private religion and keep it out of the public sector, well, in a sense, your religion, that's what you believe, is that it's not really, it doesn't have any uh, uh, staying power, efficacy in a, in a public sector. There's no such thing. What our hearts most want will be manifested in what we build, in what we create. They were working together to build something, but their focus was off. They were build, building something to make a name for themselves. What would have happened if the task had gone on? Game of Thrones would have let loose, right? Like they would have realized someone would have had to rule the tower, sit on the Iron Throne. Is it the Iron Throne? I think it's okay. Someone would have had to do it, right? So all God did was sort of just slowed them down. He localized it. He forced them to focus their confused language of trying to make names for themselves and not worship God so that it didn't destroy everyone and everybody all at once. But hearts and structures are always attached, always. If our heart is aimed at praising God, which is our universal language, it will be manifested in what we build and how we build. If our heart is aimed at making names for ourselves, which is already a confused language, that's not what humans were created for, it will be manifested in structures of prejudice. And maybe you're sitting here like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not prejudiced. First of all, yes, you are, because I am too. It's impossible to be born into this world and not be prejudiced. We are. But I get what you're saying, all right? It's kind of like the structures of Cain. We're like, I'm not violent. What we fail to realize is how we've transferred our violence into the structures we live within. Like, I'm not prejudiced. What we fail to realize is that we've transferred our prejudice into the structures we live within. So maybe you're not, but what do we, when we look bigger at what we've built, maybe that will tell a different story. So if we started at Babel, where is God taking us? And this story I want to read, because he's taken us to Pentecost. From Acts chapter 2, this is what we read. When the day of Pentecost came, they, they meaning followers of Jesus, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, Luke gives an exhaustive list. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Pentecost signals what God's heart is, and God's heart is very simple. God's intention has always been one family, always. He's created us to be one family, to have a universal language, a universal family language, 
to love in the flesh, to praise God and to take care of one another. At Babel, their focus was on human greatness, but that leads to, to confusion. For we cannot be great unless we know God and praise him and are in relationship with him. So God slowed their plans by confusing their language. And then in Genesis 12, the, in Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says that through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. God chooses one people and works in them so as to bless all people, every nation. But that has always been God's intention. He's always been after a family that loves him and loves others. That is his structural goal. Because you better believe a family is a structure too. A family is a structure too. So in the fullness of time, the word of God, the language of God becomes flesh and communicates to us the family language. He speaks to us in our native tongue, which is why everyone who encounters the story of Jesus, whether they believe in him or not, accept it or not, are deeply compelled by it. I've never met anyone who's read it and been like, eh, I haven't met that yet. I'd be like, most people, they read it or they hear it and they're like, whoa. And I would say it's because it's tapping at something very central to the human psyche. We're registering, it's registering our native tongue, our native language. That's our creator. And he's teaching us how to be human again. So in the fullness of time, Jesus comes. The language of God comes. And he tells us the, the family language. Your sins are forgiven. Your violence is forgiven. Come recover your native tongue. Be a part of the family again. And God pours out his spirit so as to solidify this promise. God's spirit is teaching us the family DNA. He's teaching us the family language. But there are two points of this story that I want to draw attention to because of their, uh, their reference to Babel. And they are this. First, all are declaring the wonders of God. That's what's being spoken at Pentecost. People aren't saying how great one another are. People aren't saying down with the man. They're declaring the wonders of God. That's what we've been created for. We become most fully ourselves when we are praising God with our lives, with our hearts. No matter what our emotions may say, no matter what our minds may say, we are created to praise God. First thing, all are declaring the wonders of God. And second thing, notice, no one is speaking their native language. As theologian Daniela Augustine writes, the language of another stands at the center of God's new kingdom. So we're praising God, but we're not praising God in our own native language. We're praising God in your native language, in another's native language. Because the focus of God's family has always been love God and love others. Not I win, you lose. Not I win, you win. But I surrender, you surrender. The focus of God's family, true love, is when every impulse of every heart is aimed, not at preserving what is mine, but laying it all down so as to love God and love you. But if everyone's doing that, then you're laying it all down so as to love God and love me. I don't have to look out for myself. That's the kingdom. That's what he's after. And so at Pentecost, God reverses Babel. 
At Babel, the internal language was confused because they were trying to make names for themselves, so the external language matches. At Pentecost, the internal is, universal, is the, the universal language of praising God and loving others, so the external matches. They're not speaking their own language, they're speaking another person's language. And when we do that, when we actually speak our most fundamental language, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, we become a people of jubilee. The family is the alternative imagination to the structures of Babel they lived among. Now, Jesus' followers were a Pentecost people. So the question becomes, how do we as people of Pentecost enter into Babel, into our society of Babel, which is still aimed at different people trying to make names for themselves, and invite people to worship God through learning another's language? How do we not participate in Babel but actually live into Pentecost, into the new family. And what I want to do in these sermons going forward, is because like I said earlier, I'm not Hope Brooklyn, we're Hope Brooklyn. You're Hope Brooklyn. And so what I want to do is uh, on the next couple Sundays is invite people up who, are, um, who might have a unique perspective or better experts than I, and to help us consider what it might look like to imagine alternatives to imagine what it looks like, in this case, uh, to praise God by learning another's language, not preserving our own family name, not building our own structures and towers, but learning what it is uh, to build the new family. And so today, I am delighted to welcome up my good friend and yours, Miss Alicia Pizarro. Can we give it up for Alicia if she comes up? And so what we're going to do is we're going to examine uh, the structures of Cain that commit violence due to the fallacy of Babel. And we're going to do it together. Uh, Alicia, many of y'all know her. She oversees our justice team at Hope Brooklyn. Um, she was a lawyer in the district attorney's office in the Bronx. Say what? I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. <laughs> I a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and works for Legal Outreach now, which is a nonprofit. Um, that provides legal services and helps train kids to become lawyers. Yes. Awesome. And so she's going to help us look at the structures of Babel and the structures of Cain. And I think when we consider, because what we said about Babel is that it's structural prejudice, right? But when we consider what that is in the American context, I think our version, I think we all know it, our version of structural prejudice is racism, is structural racism. And I just want to say something real quick. I know how tough it can be to talk about structural racism. I do. I found in my experience that um, because I come from, I mean, as a white guy, I really didn't see it at all growing up. And so I know that when, when it started being revealed to me um, how structures favored my skin color and maybe not others, it was terrifying, and I, I want to I just say something real quick before we step into it. I found that the reason why it's so terrifying, and I want to use an analogy, and please forgive me uh, if this actually happened and triggers something, but it's almost like learning that your mom or your dad was living a double life. Because what you saw growing up, your dad was always present, your dad loved you and your siblings, was there, and then suddenly you learn one day that oh my goodness, your dad actually had a double life and was not good to other people. And then you start questioning this whole relationship. 
whoa, 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 was, did he actually love me? Was this real? See, when we talk about individual racism, we're almost okay with that because it becomes the outlier. Oh, it's just them. It's not me. But to talk about structures, then it starts to terrify us a little bit because like how much of our lives have been a lie? What else has been hidden from us is what we're wondering. And so if that's you, I just want to speak to that and say you're safe in this space and we want to explore it together. But again, remembering the premise that what our hearts desire will be found in the structures we create. And there's a difference between guilt and responsibility. So you might not be guilty for your dad's decisions, but we're still responsible for the family name, right? You might not be guilty for what people have chosen where you didn't get a say in, but we're still responsible for following Jesus today. And we're going to do that together as a family. All right. So with that qualifier, Alicia, I guess the first question I have is where do you see structures of Cain of that violence that is based on racism in your work and in your experience. So where do you see structures committing violence against others due to the fear of the other and a desire to make a name or preserve uh, a name? Yeah, Um, so let me first start by saying my heart is pounding. So this is like, (laughs) the conversation is hard for everyone. Let me put that out there. Um, So structures of Cain. In the work that I do, I go into middle schools in underserved communities and present the opportunity to be a part of a program called the Summer Law Institute, where we teach young people about criminal law, about how to try a criminal case, in hopes that we can bring them into our four-year program um, and prepare them for college. Um, And the organization was founded because my executive director, coming out of Harvard Law School, came to New York City to become a teacher. And he went into Boys and Girls High School, which is in Bed-Stuy, and another high school in Harlem, and walked into the classroom excited about the idea that he was a lawyer, black man, and was going to invite other young black people into this reality. And he noticed um, that many of the young people in those spaces were not even prepared to succeed in high school. Um, They couldn't read well, they couldn't do math, and we're talking 11th and 12th graders. And it became so apparent to him um, that there was a structure in place that was not going to allow them to succeed. Um, And this is not different from my own experience, and it's one of those things that you don't realize until you're in a different space and you're like, oh, so I remember I've gone to black schools my whole life, elementary, middle, high school. And that is a function of the way our communities tend to look here in New York City. Um, People tend to live with the same sorts of people. As diverse as we are as a city, we're not very integrated. Um, I have a graphic that kind of shows what, yeah. So kind of look at that. Only one in four New Yorkers lives in an integrated neighborhood. Imagine that. So it was one of those things that you don't see it until you're out of it. My reality was, I grew up in a black neighborhood, I went to black schools, it just was what it was. Um, And I didn't understand the implications of that or the differences until I got to college. And I'm gonna be real vulnerable right now. (laughs) Um, I had never interacted with someone who wasn't black or Hispanic or Asian, South Asian, until I went to college, who was my own age. They were always someone of authority you know, a boss, a teacher, but never a peer. 
And so I had a different, like, I just, I just did it. I remember going to college and being like, oh, my God, white girls. <laughs> like, because I, that just wasn't my experience. Um, and so, you know, your reality can be very different depending on where you are. Um, but in terms of seeing the work of those structures, I got into college, and I didn't know grammar. My colleagues knew grammar. They had gone to schools that taught them grammar. I had never learned grammar, and I was in college. Um, and like, that's not an uncommon thing. So the young people that we serve, we teach them grammar. Because if you go into some of these public schools, they're not teaching them grammar. <laughs> they're just not learning it. And it's, it's just what it is. Um, and so, you know, I see it when I go, you know, I can go into a, a middle school in gentrifying Long Island City, and it's a brand new building. They've got smart boards, they've got air conditioning, the seats all have wheels, they recline, you know, their, their lunchroom is beautiful. I go into some of these schools in East New York and Brownsville, and people have to borrow chart paper and borrow markers because they don't even have basic supplies in the schools in comparison to other places where there's like an abundance of technology. Every student has a MacBook. And in some schools, students are sharing textbooks, you know? And so the structures are real. And they're divided based on socioeconomic status, which is almost directly correlated to race. And it's unfortunate, but I see it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're trying to sort of combat, giving everybody access to education, irrespective of where they live, irrespective of their parents' trajectory, um, to try and shake up some of these structures and systems. Totally. Totally. And so, yeah, so would you speak to that then? Um, so the idea that the church, as followers of Jesus, we are called to create one family again, to invite into the family mm -hmm. through learning the other's language. Where have you seen that done in a really compelling way? Like, where have you seen structural <laughs> racism confronted through people imagining alternatives? Yeah. Um, so this imagination is a two-way street, at least for me, I'll say that, mm -hmm. um, as somebody who's who's in, in the world. <laughs> um, because even for me, it can be really easy for me to say, I don't need nobody else. I'm gonna make this happen myself. Um, or I don't need to partner with anyone. I can take down this tower alone, mm -hmm. which is unrealistic. Um, and so in terms of the work that I do, I've noticed you know, in a really, really compelling way that some of the largest law firms here in New York City where you know the attorneys are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, recognize that there is an issue with the pipeline of young black and Latinx students getting to law school. And so the way that they try to combat that is by partnering with us. So they say, you know what? Oh, you're doing this program at this law school. Let us print your textbooks. Let us host your kids for a trip. Let us give them some internships. Let us have them shadow us for a day. So really just recognizing it and seeing, okay, what can we do differently? What is this new imagination yeah. that we can think of that might make a difference? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's really, really successful because I think people kind of shed the stuff that they carry within them about young black and Latinx students, yeah. which is not easy. Um, because when you, when you come with sort of understandings and biases and structures about people without context because you don't live with them, you don't engage with them, you don't know them, then it can be difficult to shake that off. Um, and so, you know, it is a level of preparation on the part of, of the folks who are reaching out and saying, let us partner with you in this. But it's also 
there's also a level of preparation for our young people because we do have to prepare them to go into spaces where not everyone is gonna see you and think they can trust their purse around you. It's just real. Some people are still gonna be like, oh, let me lock this up. When there's not a, a stealing bone in a kid's body, but if they have these, these misconceptions and these bad understandings, then they might still transfer that onto a student that they've never met before. Yeah. Um, but you know, people be, being willing to kind of step into relationships with our young people is amazing. I have a photo I want to show you guys. Can you see it? Okay. So those young people in the front are some of my kids. That's Jamie Nunez, Dave Jasmine, Jadina, who's that? Jamel, Melody, and um, Michael. They're all juniors now. And the people behind them are attorneys from Con Edison. So this is just an example of people who very obviously don't have the same experience as my young people saying, how can we support you? How can we join in this? And these were not forced smiles. We didn't say smile because everybody was up there looking grimaced. No, this is partnership both ways. And um, those have been some of the most encouraging ways that I've seen folks kind of step into these structures and say, this isn't right, what can I do? And no one's perfect. You know, I, I've, I have just as many stories that are not that successful as I have stories that are really successful. But it's a work in progress. And I just feel like as long as people are calling things out and being willing to step into the conversation about how they change it, then we're taking the right steps. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think, and I found it even in, in growing up in my own heart, when having these conversations around structural racism, mm -hmm. um, one of the main reasons where my fear to step into that conversation is a fear of, uh, is it safe to do so? Is the new family of Pentecost stronger than the family of Babel in a lot, in a lot of ways? Because it is, it's easier to be with people just like you. Mm -hmm. um, how would you encourage us as Hope Brooklyn, as the people of Jubilee, to step into these types of conversations in the new family, to misspeak, to, to come to a realization or to explore prejudices in our own hearts and to look out and see it in, see it in the structures and say, hey, this family is still stronger. How would you encourage us um, to, to, to feel safe to start doing that work together as a family? So that's like a loaded question <laughs> because I don't fully know, yeah. I think is the truthful answer. I think one thing that has served me well and has served other people who I felt like have authentically come into these sorts of conversations about structures of racism and how to tackle them and what that means for their own experience or the experience of their neighbor is that they're approaching it from a very specific lens. And it's not a me lens, it's not a my lens, it's not a, this is my experience lens. For those who are Christian, it's a very much gospel and Christ-centered lens. Mm -hmm. If we take off our own experience and put on the eyes and heart of God, of Jesus Christ, then I think we begin to see things differently. Mm -hmm. And if we say we believe in Christ and what he says and we hold on to the fact that he's guiding us, right, that he's giving us this wisdom, then it kind of takes the pressure off of us a little bit, right? Helping us kind of shed that fear. But we have to be willing to take that first step. As with anything, 
it's gonna be a fight. It's gonna be hard, you're gonna be afraid, you're gonna say the wrong thing, because I do it all the time also, because I too have prejudices that can blind me at times. But if we're unwilling to even engage in the fight, we're never ever gonna fix anything. Totally. And we yeah. truly can't fix it ourselves. It has to be bigger than us. Totally. Yeah, and the whole point of the gospel is that there is nothing that keeps us from the love of God. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to be afraid of death, we actually have all the time in the world to step into this of creating the new world with him. Yeah. Totally. But I do encourage you to step into the, convers into the conversation. Totally. Even if you're scared. Yeah. Like I said, my heart is pounding right now. I could probably pass out if I really tried. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fighting it. Right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the last question. How can we learn the other's language as they learn ours in the new family? Give us our steps, personal, social, and structural, what would you say? Yeah, so I think personal is definitely joining in that conversation. So our, our goal is to kind of have spaces where people can come out and talk, where you can say, yeah, you know what? I noticed I moved into whatever neighborhood mm -hmm. and in 2013 it looked like this, but now it looked like this, looks like this. I wonder why, can we talk about that? Um, you know, so really just opening yourself up to the opportunity to step into these spaces, have these conversations, ask and answer the hard questions. Cause that's another thing. We're, we're not comfortable, well, let me say this. I think our current climate does not allow for people to disagree and continue talking. And that's unfortunate. The way we live now, we disagree and we write people off. Like, that's it, oh, that's what you believe, we're done. Wow, my hood really came out. <laughs> um, and and, and that's, that's, not, that's not a realistic way to live. I mean, you can live that way if you want, but don't expect things to change. And, and, and if, if that's your goal, to keep things the same, then fine, write me off. Um, but I, I think we have to be willing to join the conversation in the good, the bad, the ugly, the cries, the, and know that we can all still come back to this table together, because that's really what it boils down to, right? To be able to come back to this table, because it's not about us. It's so much deeper than us. I'm not, you know, I don't do what I do because I care about it. I mean, I do care about it, but I do what I do because my understanding of who Christ is and what he wants for this world doesn't lend itself to an entire population of people being underprepared for higher education. That just doesn't make sense to me. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't align with what I understand, who I understand God to be and what, he, what I understand him to want for the world yeah. while we're here. <sighs> Off my sofa. So... <laughs> Stay on it. <laughs> Join in the conversation. Um, I, think, I think proximity and relationships matter. And so as a, what's the second one? Personal, social? Social. As a social one, I know we said we were going to do safe families every single time, but I truly believe that that organization sets us up to be able to enter into other people's language. Mm -hmm. Because if your reality is not homelessness, if your reality is not being the victim of domestic violence, then you may not understand how the structures impact that, how that reality um, you know, shapes the way you view the world. But if you enter into relationship with someone where that is their reality, then you're gonna get a sense of that. You're gonna be able to understand and speak their language and think creatively about how you live in a different, in a different world. Mm -hmm. um, so Safe Families is amazing, join it. <laughs> um, and then structurally, I'm reading a book that has been, it's been teaching me a lot um, and it's called The Color of Compromise. It's the truth about the American church's complicity in racism, which I think deep down most of us know and recognize. 
but seeing it from a historical perspective and walking through what the church, big C, like the church, big church, not just our church, um, what role we can play in, in changing that is so super important because as much as I love God and love his people, some of my most hurtful experiences that have been directly tied to race, I've had in church. I've had someone refuse to drink out of a communion cup after me. I've had, sorry, I've had a, a preacher pray only for one set of people after a black man was literally shot for no reason. You know, so some of the most hurtful things I've experienced have happened in church. So reading this book is really kind of helping me look at the historical perspective of it so that I can understand it and so that we can kind of work towards something different. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Can we give it up for Alicia, guys? Yeah! Um, so if you want to join in a conversation um, to explore more of this. Uh, Alicia and our justice team, we're gonna be hosting it this Wednesday, May 29th, from seven to 8.30. Location still to be determined. There's a sign-up sheet at the What's Next table. I would encourage us, uh, if you're free, if you're able to, to, to be a part of this. You don't know what you're gonna say, you don't know what's gonna happen, great. Show up anyway and listen, because this is family. This is stronger. We are coming to this table together. Uh, Safe Families for Children, the sign-up sheet is at the What's Next table. And structurally, that book. If you have questions about it, see Alicia after service as well. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the band back up. If you're serving communion, would you come forward now? Um, and we come to the table every Sunday um, as a way to remind ourselves that this is so much bigger than us. This work, though we are invited to be a part of it, it actually starts right there at that table. He initiated the family. He purchased uh, our way into it. So a couple directions, and then Alicia, I was wondering, would you pray for us uh, before we come to the table? A um, couple directions. Um, parents, if you'd like to include your families in, and, and your kids into the communion experience, go check them out upstairs and then bring them down. Uh, we have four stations, two in the front, two in the back. Uh, so whichever one is closest to you, you can go there, take the bread, dip it into the cup, you can receive immediately. Um, or you can uh, uh, go back to your seat and pray. After we all finish, we're going to stand together and sing a song, a closing song, to remind us of what God is doing in us as the people of Jubilee. And last but not least, we say the table is a symbol of a heart's confession that Jesus is Lord and is open to all, free of cost. So Alicia's going to pray, and then would you come forward? Father God, I just want to start by just thanking you thanking you for giving us a community of folks who, even if they don't fully understand, even if they don't fully agree, even if they don't even know if they wanna be a part of the conversation, are still being, you know, are, are contemplating these really tough things. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be a community of folks who are willing to step out on your faith, our faith in you, to be able to engage in these tough conversations, Lord. I pray that as we walk around our communities and interact with our neighbors and interact with one another, Lord God, that we would do so with you at our core, 
that as we look out at the world and the structures that might impact different people, Lord God, that we would remember what your promises are for the world and for us, and that that will be our motivator, Lord God. As we go out to try and do the common good and to love our neighbor, Jesus, I just pray that you be the person who's leading us, that we would be fighting towards that common language, Lord God, and that we'll no longer look at each other as the other. Father God, I'm grateful that we're able to come to your table together. I pray that you would just stand with us, that you would continue to watch over us and strengthen us, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.